Hello, everybody. Welcome to Monday Night Live. My name's Derek Arden. Tonight, we've got a very special guest from New Jersey in uh, uh, near New York City, as uh, as uh, everybody knows, uh, Tom Harding. Tom, welcome. You've got a very interesting story, Tom, so I won't muck about. I'll let you tell us your story. Uh, welcome to Monday Night Live, and thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you for having me, Derek, and it's great great to be here on Monday Night Live. Um, just as a, as a brief introduction to get kick things off. Uh, my name is Tom Harden, of course, just over 10 years ago. Uh, I was also known as Tipper X. Uh, there was a large FBI investigation in the US into the crime of insider trading. So very briefly, buying stocks uh, with information that's not public, and that's material information that would move stock prices. So uh, around the financial crisis, 85 people in my old industry, the hedge fund industry, uh, were charged with insider trading. So these were big time uh, multimillionaire hedge fund managers, traders, analysts. Uh, 32 of these 85 people uh, were called cooperators. So these were hedge fund analysts like myself who helped the FBI build these larger cases. Uh, I always say you don't just volunteer to cooperate with the FBI. Uh, they do have to approach you on the street, which I'm gonna talk about. And I really had no plans ever to do what I've been doing now for the past seven years. It's usually a, a new group of people every week. And hey, here's the worst thing I ever did. Uh, but I got a phone call uh, from the FBI in the summer of 2016. And I thought, oh my God, you know, what do these guys want now? I'd be kicked out of the industry. And they said, only if I wanted to, would I go to downtown Manhattan uh, to speak with the FBI's rookie agents and their white collar crime group there about my case? Because back in the day, I was the youngest person they charged and I made uh, the least amount of money. So at first I thought they were rubbing it in, like I wasn't good at this, you know, I was trying not to get caught, but they actually said, no, it's a very, very human story, you know, the why behind the actions, why'd you do what you did? So told that to these rookie FBI agents um, as part of their training. And a couple agents there encouraged me to go out and share the story. So the past seven years, uh, just as a speaker, a corporate trainer, usually brought in uh, around compliance training, uh, especially in financial services, there's a lot of compliance training that has to happen. So I come in. Uh, share the story. Um, just to give you a quick sort of background on my where I grew up. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, so southern U.S. Uh, father worked there for Coca-Cola Company. Uh, mother stayed at home with the, with the three boys, middle-class family, first of my family to attend college, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, graduated just at the turn of the century and started working in the hedge fund business uh, 2000. Uh, my first job was at a tech stock-focused hedge fund in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, the fund's no longer around. Uh, but pretty early in my career, I got wind that other people covering tech stocks like me at different hedge funds were trading stocks on inside information. Um, you know, there might be investors in hedge funds who are CEOs and CFOs of these tech stock companies in Silicon Valley. So you can imagine if these individuals are invested in a hedge fund, uh, there might be a conflict of interest there in terms of sharing information about their upcoming corporate events. So this is happening. So now we're around 2006, um, about 60% of stocks uh, before they're acquired in the public markets had unexplained uh, spikes in the share prices. So you might see a corporate deal announced, company A is buying company B. And if you were to pull up the stock chart of company B, you could see the stock price running for weeks and weeks in advance. So leakage of information is happening. I know what's going on as a young analyst in my 20s. 
I never felt I had to cross that proverbial line, at least early in my career. Uh, I was known as a great stock picker. Uh, one of my career making trades that I never saw happen was after Google's IPO, after a year of studying Google, I kind of figured out that the, ye the yellow page companies were probably going out of business. So the one trade I never saw happen was to be long Google, Google and short the yellow pages. That would have been the only trade I ever would have needed for my career. I didn't see that, uh, unfortunately, uh, pan out. And so I know it's going on. Don't feel I have to cross the line. And then one day, uh, my boss came into my office. This is my second job in 2006, 2007. Now I'm a junior partner, 29 years old at a hedge fund. So I've worked my way up from analyst to a junior partner, a great seat. Uh, just myself, uh, my boss, and a CFO. He comes into my office one day and he says, Tom, I know we're investing longer term uh, over three to five years, but we had, just, we had just lost money in the first quarter of our uh, investing, sort of starting our fund. We have to start looking for shorter term opportunities to make money every month or we may not survive. And so and when any goal in the business goes from longer term like that to shorter term, the opportunity to start to cut quarters certainly increases. And I'd also say, when I think about it in my corporate talks today, I talk a lot about ambiguous messages uh, from senior managers. So the ambiguity in his message to me to do what it takes uh, played a part in these decisions about I'm about to make here. And so, uh, Derek, maybe I'll just pause there. Any um, clarifying questions or just to set the stage for the next events? <laughs> You know, that's great, Tom. And we we have discussed on Monday Night Live before um, when you cross the line. And we know a lot of people across the line. And, uh, you know, once you do that, it's very difficult not to do it, isn't it? And, uh, you know, that's uh, you keep go you keep carrying on. But I can see another Monday Night Live coming up about uh, bribes and other issues yeah. and pressure that comes down, particularly when you're young. Now, thanks. Tom. Yeah. So the. So the pressure went from, you know, make money the next three years to make money every month. And so uh, a few months later, I got a call from another investor who had worked for this guy, Raj Roger Ratnam, a Sri Lankan billionaire hedge fund manager. He might be the most famous person uh, charged with insider trading. Uh, she had worked for him. She said, hey, you know, all this is going on. Uh, I had made her a lot of money over the last few years. You know, I give her my best stock tip every year. You know, this is my best idea of the year. Uh, she had very explicit information for me. She said uh, a Moody's analyst, so at the bond rating agency in the U.S., who was roommates with her cousin, told her a company, uh, Kronos, was going to be acquired. Like, here's, here's the date. Here's the price. Here's the private equity firm. So in our business, that's very explicit information. Uh, it's not like a rumor. Like, she was full of rumors when she would call, but she said, this is exactly happening. And so... At first, I thought, well, this sounds illegal. I would never trade this stock. But later that day, I'm talking to a friend outside my firm who I talk to once a month, not a close friend. He works at a trading firm where he only got paid if he made money for the firm that month. He's down. We're talking. He said, Tom, are you hearing anything out there I could put a short-term trade on? It kind of was a throwaway comment. I said, I'm not going to trade this, but this is happening. This woman said this in a few weeks. Here's the date. Here's the price. And in my finance talks today, I say, look, I could be charged with insider trading just for sharing this information. I have no idea what he's going to do with it. He tells his whole firm, they're excited. They're buying the stock. I see it starting to trade up. And then a few days later, he calls me and he said, hey, did you buy some? And when an employee commits fraud, it's usually there's three reasons. There's the fraud triangle. 
there is the need to cross that line we talked about. So was there a need in my life to really do this? You know, not really. Of course, there's a need for short-term performance. So maybe um, there's the opportunity to do it. So the opportunity at my firm uh, was I could buy a stock in our portfolio and not have to talk to the boss as long as it was less than 1% of the assets we manage for clients, a very small position. And I calculated and bought a 0.9% position in the portfolio in Kronos. And the, the third reason why an employee commits fraud often is its rationalization. So I totally rationalized what I did. I said, all these other guys are doing it, making millions. Um, who am I really hurting? You know, I told myself, I'm just buying this stock before everybody else. Um, I said, I'll do it just this once and never do it again. And I actually told myself, you know, I could buy this stock and I still thought of myself as a good person, you know, a uh, faithful husband, church volunteer. And so I had this moral scale in my head where I also said, we do thousands of trades a year. I can do one bad one. That's the way I looked at it in my head. And if my boss had a problem, he would ask me about it, of course. And so one of the bigger takeaways now with my corporate talks is uh, I made a decision in isolation. So an idea of uh, isolated decision-making where information comes to me, I don't talk to the boss, I don't talk to anybody, made the decision on my own to cross that line at my firm. Uh, it would happen three more times like this, uh, tips and trades uh, from this lady, the boss never asking me questions. Now, these stocks are all up about 30% before the markets opens. And so we're going through our portfolio, uh, looking at the stocks with the boss. He doesn't ask me any questions about this, this situation. So again, I'm rationalizing where he he thinks it's fine with me. He's my he's the closest thing I have to a mentor. Um, and it happened four times like that. Uh, the firm made a million dollars on these trades. We managed about a hundred million for clients, so it added one percent of performance. And personally, I made forty-six thousand uh, dollars on these four wow. trades. So it's not like I was trying to make millions, trying trying not to get caught. So forty-six thousand uh, dollars. I always say it's very bluntly the price of professional suicide for me. Unfortunately, at twenty-nine years old, uh, was forty-six thousand dollars. So happy to to pause there uh, before we get to the next uh, next part of the story. Yeah, wow. Professional suicide. I can see that. Yeah. Um, there's no questions at the moment in the chat box, Tom, and I'm only taking them in the chat box at the moment uh, until we okay. start recording. So um, so if you're OK, then um, then keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, forty six thousand uh, dollars at the end of 2007. Now, the four trades were in 2007. Uh, the woman who was tipping me called me out of breath. She said, Tom, Tom, uh, the SEC, the regulator in the US had just called her and was asking her about one of these trades. You know, what should I say, Tom, what should I say? And I thought, oh my God, what if the SEC were to call me next? Like I had nothing um, written up, no, no research I did written up for the, why I bought these stocks, what would I say? And the problem is, you know, once you light that match, you can't unlight the match, you can't take the trades away. I can only try to put the match out. Um, so I concocted my head a plan, you know, I might be able to tell the SEC if, if they were to call me next. And now it's very important to know, uh, like the American boxer, Mike Tyson used to say, everybody has a plan in this situation until you get punched in the mouth. So the SEC didn't call me and say, hey, Tom, it's the SEC. Could you call us back about your insider trading? Instead, it was a July morning, 2008, middle of the financial crisis, Tuesday morning, 630. I'm leaving my apartment in Midtown Manhattan uh, to drop off some dry cleaning before getting a taxi to the office, stepped on the sidewalk, and this guy behind me said, are you Tom? And I turned around, 
two FBI agents, dark suits, wallets out. You've seen any American crime show, you know, you've seen the scene FBI come sit down with us. So we went and sat down at a fast food restaurant in Manhattan. And he said, look, man, we know about your four trades. We know that you were just down in Atlanta, Tom, last weekend, visiting your baby nephew. And he said his name for his baptism. So, you know, these guys are onto me. I thought, oh my God, my first thought with the FBI in my face was my dad's going to kill me. You know, <laughs> what's he going to say? And I thought, oh my God, my wife's going to find out. She had no idea. She's going to leave me. And then I thought, holy crap, this might impact my career. <laughs> oh my God, I might be going to prison. But I went from dad to prison. I start making implicating statements. Yes, I made those four trades. And he's like writing it down. He's saying, go on, go on. And so he said, Tom, I want to stop you there. He said, do you know of illicit trading going on in Wall Street right now? And to my knowledge, it was quite rampant. I said, yes, this is rampantly going on. Uh, he pulled out a web of names of insider trading tipping charts with circles and arrows. I couldn't see the names but he had two big targets at the, sheet at the top of the sheet of paper. I assume one of those guys was this guy, Roger, Rot Roger, Roger Rotnam. He folded it up. He gave me his card. He said, Tom, you have the opportunity to help us build some cases here. It's going to help you out, Tom. I took his card and I said, should I talk to an attorney first? Uh, and the FBI said, we'll let you know when you can do that. So I'll, I'll pause there just to see if uh, any questions. Are Tom, there. how long was it between you worrying about the sec uh calling you and uh you mm -hmm. actually getting these two guys in suits at 6 30 in the morning was that a week few yes. weeks uh it was about six months actually so she oh, wow. calls me january saying the sec had contacted her and so I'm, I'm concerned you know obviously that they might ask me but i had been told as long as you have some cover story you know the dumb government regulator you can just sort of tell them something and then they'll hang up the phone. So that was not until July. So it's five or six months um, after that call. So I kind of stopped thinking about it after a few months, like, you know, everybody's doing this, you know, they're going to go after the people making millions, not me. And then July was the FBI situation. Hmm. And when did you notice you were crossing the line? At which point on the first trade or the fourth trade? Yeah, no, the first trade. I mean, um, after it actually happened, I kind of told myself as I bought the stock, maybe it's just a rumor. She could be full of it. Who, who do I do I even know who she's really talking to? And then when it happens, I hate to say it, instead of having a moral epiphany, like, holy crap, uh, I just crossed the line. I have to figure this out now. I have to tell the boss and call the SEC. Um, I got kind of a feeling of adrenaline. I hate to say it. Like now I'm part of the solicit in group as a young professional. There was a group of people uh, who I knew I wasn't part of that group. And now I'm part of the group. And so I hate to say that I had some puffery, just sort of like the next time I saw these guys at the conferences that I'd attend that I knew were doing it, I said, hey, I know about Kronos. And one of them said, how do you know that? Tom, you do real work. You do real analysis. I said, actually, I do that too, but I also know about the next one coming. And then one of them uh, put his arm around me and said, you know, now you're, you're part of our group. And so I think a lot of it was just like wanting to be part of that that group. Um, and so it became easy to do it the three more times after the first time. And then also my boss, again, looking the other way. You know. Okay. I think you should carry on. There's a couple of more questions. We'll take those yeah, later. Okay. Thank you. So the FBI there, you know, don't talk to an attorney. I took his card. Uh, I didn't, I didn't talk to an attorney and that, that summer in New York city, two people like myself approached by the FBI killed themselves. 
Uh, you might think your life is over. I had some pretty dark nights. Uh, finally called the FBI. I said, I do know of illicit trading going on on Wall Street. Uh, I didn't talk to an attorney. I said, what does it mean to help the FBI? You know, I was so naive. And he said, Tom, uh, what you're going to have to do for your country, or the way he framed this, is wear what's called a body wire. And it's not something that was like taped to my chest. Uh, it was in my front pocket. So it was a small recording device about um, an inch or two big. So it fit in my front dress shirt pocket. And they said, who can you bring us basically? And I said, you know, but, you know, who do you want? It's sort of like anybody I could have gone after, but I felt like I would go after who I thought were the worst actors. The problem was I didn't know them that well. It was more by reputation. And so it might be a 48-year-old multimillionaire hedge fund manager. I'm a 29-year-old analyst. What I try to do is get conversations with people at Starbucks and say, hey, I'm looking for a job. I'm interviewing around, which in 2008 was very, uh, you know, that wasn't going to be like a crazy story to tell. And so we get people in face-to-face -face conversations and then, you know, ask them about times uh, that they may have uh, traded on stocks uh, with inside information. And so a pretty awkward experience to be doing this. I mean, think about if you're on the other side of the table from me getting coffee and saying, hey, uh, remember two years ago when you traded on inside information, what would you say if you were ever asked as to why you did that? And I'm kind of leaning in, you know, like this is the conversation. And sometimes people would say, change the subject. Uh, one Sunday afternoon, there was a guy high up the FBI's list. I got him probably in 15 conversations over my first year of wearing the wire. And I'm still actually holding on to my job too at this point. He would always change the subject. One Sunday afternoon, he gave me a call and he said, Tom, we need to have dinner tonight. We need to talk. And so I called the FBI and said, this guy you want wants to have dinner. They met me at the train, train station in Manhattan in Grand Central to give me the wire. I took the train out to Greenwich, Connecticut, where this guy lived. He picked me up at the train station. He said, Tom, good to see you. I brought swim trunks for you. We're going swimming at my mother's house. So I'm not a good swimmer. Uh, the Sopranos, that show was popular that summer. So all these ideas are going through my head. I played it cool, got into his car. I said, let's go swimming. We go to this house. He starts disrobing in this room. He wants to see if something's taped to my chest. It was in my front pocket. Now I'm about to have a heart attack. I excused myself, went to the restroom, took the wire out, put it in my jeans, put these swim trunks on. So it's the two of us walking out to this pool. It was so quiet. I saw a shovel against the house, a hole in the ground. I thought, oh my God, is this guy going to try to kill me or something? And we got in the swimming pool and he grabs a tennis ball and we're playing this awkward game of catch. So he's pouring it on psychologically. And after a few minutes of freaking me out, he said, Tom, I've spoken to an attorney and he has to ask me a question. I have to answer truthfully. I was so scared. I was going to just give up my cover. I wanted to go home. I said, what do you want to know? He said, okay, Tom, have you been approached uh, by the SEC? Who's the regulator? And truthfully, I could say, no, not the SEC. He didn't catch that nuance. He said, okay, I'm sorry. I, I just had to make sure you weren't wearing a wire, Tom. And then he starts uh, making implicating statements once he saw the wire wasn't on me the way he pictured it. And he was actually never charged by the FBI. Um, I think he retired a few years ago, but he never had me in as a guest speaker. So that, that was the craziest moment of this whole thing where I thought my life might be in danger. And just to finish it up, um, early 2010, the FBI is kind of done with me. So I'm two years into wearing the wire. Uh, I finally hired an attorney, a, actually a year into this, 
I finally hired an attorney. The FBI told me to talk to an attorney. You can imagine how that went. I called a few people in New York and said, hey, uh, you know, the FBI told me to talk to you now. And of course, the attorney said, well, who, did your, who was your attorney before me? I said, you're the first I've spoken to. And he said, Tom, you're supposed to hire me the first day the FBI approached you on the street. I said, you know what? It's my first time doing this. So pretty straightforward for me. I'm going to plead guilty. I helped the FBI quite a bit. And eventually, uh, at the end of 2009, I wasn't sure how this was going. The FBI never really told me how I was doing for them. It was always sort of like a stone faced. You can imagine FBI agent, no emotion. Uh, the fall of 2009, I had left my firm. I was worried my name might come out any day uh, because in the, in the newspaper, they talked about these cases and they called somebody Tipper X in these cases. They kept referring to the mysterious Tipper X helping the FBI. And so I didn't know I was Tipper X the first time, but I quickly figured it out. It's probably me. And so that's what the FBI called me. And so into 2009, I leave my firm. My wife's in the hospital giving birth to our first daughter. The FBI calls me and says, turn on CNBC. I turn it on. There's like 20 people in handcuffs being arrested by the FBI. And they said, this was all your work, Tom. And so a pretty, pretty big day for the Harden household, I always say, in this, this situation. And then eventually uh, I had to plead guilty. Uh, my name became public when the FBI was done with me. So that was a terrible day. You know, anybody that knew me on Wall Street, I say is a victim of what I did because they actually had to tell, you know, their compliance officer, hey, I know this guy, Tom, and they had no idea, you know, I was involved in this. And then I wasn't sentenced for almost seven years until the after the FBI approached me. So uh, especially in the States, it can take years and years. Uh, the judge looked at my case. I helped uh, the FBI build 20 of these 85 cases. She went back to her chambers and she's like, you know, what's the point of sending you to prison? Just go on with your life. So I'm extremely lucky I wasn't incarcerated. You know, I can't go to uh, colleges doing scared straight prison stories, but it doesn't matter. Um, convicted felon, unfortunately, the rest of my life. Uh, can't have a, a personal trading account. Can't work in any regulated industry again. And I can't even have a personal checking account in the U.S. because I'm on every anti-money laundering list in the world, uh, an AML list. And so it's not a complaint. It's just some consequences uh, of my poor choices back, um, you know, back when I was a young professional. And so about a year after I'm sentenced, the FBI invited me to speak about it. And that's that's where I am today. So. Wow. Congratulations on uh what you've done and being honest about it, um, et cetera. There's a few questions in the chat box I'll ask you before we, uh, so what about your fam family? <laughs> when yeah. did you tell your family? Yeah, so the FBI approaches me on that Tuesday morning on the street. They said I could only tell my wife. And I thought, well, that's easier said than done. You know, she's gonna leave me. 85% uh, of marriages actually leave, uh, end when the spouse gets a felony. I mean, it's not a surprise. And so, that was a Tuesday morning. I waited till Friday after work. I was having panic attacks, bad sweats. Uh, she could see I wasn't me. You know, I always like to make jokes and, and make her laugh. And so I was very serious. I was always waking up before she woke up to get to the office and then getting home late just so I didn't have to tell her about this. And then Friday, I couldn't take it anymore. I'm like, I'm going to tell her. And so walk home, New York City, you know, young couple, how was your week? And she was actually working at Lehman Brothers. And so she had all the stories. I said, okay, wait, let me go first. Something, something happened this week. And I said, you have to sit down. And I told her, you know, on Tuesday morning, the FBI approached me. I did do this. Uh, they're giving me the opportunity to help them out. And she, she waited a second. And then she said, can you repeat that? It wasn't what she was thinking. And then she said, well, you didn't do anything to hurt me. Uh, if they're giving you a chance to clean up the industry, you should probably do it. So 
in 85% of situations, the wife would say, I'm out of here. You know, I married the future multimillionaire hedge fund guy, uh, not the future tipper X, right? So that was very lucky. I've never met somebody in my situation where the, where the wife stays with them. Um, so I'm very lucky in that regard. And then uh, I couldn't tell my parents until my name became public. So I flew them up. Uh, they came to visit me in New Jersey. And then that was a very tough conversation because, you know, all they can talk about is my success uh, from little school in Georgia to this to this Ivy League school. I was never supposed to get into this hedge fund career. And so that was tough, um, but it, it's better now. So it's just, um, I think somebody in my situation can either own their bad choices or try to like scrub their Google profile uh, to get rid of this. And so I figured why not own it uh, and, and do some good for, for younger professionals. Well, I'm so pleased to hear that your wife stood by you in those circumstances. You clearly have a wonderful wife. Um, how did you, how did you manage your stress and your um, blood pressure and your heartbeat at that time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 2008 financial crisis. Our performance is terrible at work. Mine's mine's terrible at work. Not just for the stock picking, but everything else I have going on. My side job, uh, wearing the wire for the FBI. Uh, my health was pretty terrible. I was well over uh, 200 pounds, um, so quite heavy. Um, and so I'm out of work. At least my wife, uh, she was able to find a job after Lehman went under. So thank God she could at least, uh, we could just pay the, the basic uh, expenses every month. But I'm a stay-at-home dad, depressed, uh, quite heavy. Uh, at one point, I'm carrying my daughter up the stairs in my house and I'm out of breath. And I go to the doctor and I haven't been in 10 years, I guess, typical, typical guy. <laughs> I hadn't been to the doctor in a long time. Nothing was wrong. And then he said, you're well over 200 pounds. Um, and your blood work is terrible. You know, is something going on in your life? And I figured, like, doctor, do you, do you have an hour or two? This is not a short conversation. And I told my wife, she signs me up for a 5K race. She was a runner. And so I started running. And then she actually beat me uh, in the race, pushing our daughter in the jogging stroller. But it, it lit a fire. I went from doing 5Ks to half marathons to marathons to ultra marathon races. So anything longer than the marathon distance. But the problem was I was so into endurance sports at this point, I lost 70 pounds. I wasn't dealing with what I had to actually deal with in my life, like my professional future, these important conversations uh, with my wife. And then I signed up for a hundred mile race around a one mile loop. And so you're supposed to walk, run these races. I'm not in the best headspace, but this is all I can do. I can't work doing these endurance events. And my car is there every mile uh, getting my Gatorade or whatever, my, my food to, to get through this hundred miles. And at mile 78, my race is basically done. My body's breaking down. That's three marathons. I'm done with this race. Mm. I pop the trunk, go to my, um, go to my like uh, air mattress there in the trunk of my car. And there's a note from my wife. And she says, we didn't sleep on you. You can't sleep on us. So talk about more tough love for me. I turn around, finish the race. And just a long story short, I was dealing with a lot of shame and guilt. And I didn't know the difference guilt is I did a bad thing and it still keeps me going today. Shame is I'm a terrible person and did a bad thing. And I quickly learned after that, that shame is not helpful for anybody. Uh, the guilt keeps me going with these presentations, but the shame is not. So once I understood the difference, it actually became mentally a little bit easier to deal with the situation. Last question, because we're nearly out of time on the, uh, on the recording. Do you, do you think artificial intelligence would have stopped this happening? Um, in, in 2023? Yeah, no, I think uh, today with what's out there, absolutely, at least um, it would have been, you know, if we had any trading surveillance like we have today, this 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 back pattern, you know, the tip, the trade, the small trade, it would have set off alarms because it was around events. But 
The problem is uh, today, the way it's be, the crime is being committed, it's, it's way beyond what I did. Not that it can't happen like I did, but it's so far beyond that there's more um, you know, international bad actors hacking corporate issuer websites, trying to get information. And so I think the bad actor is always ahead of the market surveillance. And it often takes the regulators a few years to catch up to where the bad actors are. And so um, when you see cases, the SEC is very uh, punitive in the States. You'll see a case once a week, but it's a very easy case. You'll see somebody works at a public company, they found out it was gonna be acquired and they call it a relative in the stock market and the SEC takes five minutes to prosecute these. Uh, I don't think they have the resources to actually go after the bigger bad actors because mm-hmm. um, it's government regulators. So, you know, overwork, underpaid, don't have the resources. I think their budget should be 10X what it is to really catch the people using AI and other, mm-hmm. other things today. So we'll see. So on one piece of advice for any younger person watching this that might just be tempted to, cross the line, whatever that is? Yeah, no, I think um, I think we all rationalize. We're all human beings, not just criminals. Um, two things, I guess, you know, think about if you're 25, think about where you want to be when you're 35 and then work backwards. Uh, find a mentor that's around that age. They can get you there. I didn't have any mentors in my 20s. I guess the closest mentor I have was my boss. And so that, that wasn't a great situation. Um, and so figure out, think long-term and work backwards. Also, um, I was drowning in insecurity because my competition was, you know, breaking the law to get ahead. So that fateful moment where I could have hung up the phone and not did that. Uh, I was, I think, really insecure about these guys are cheating and they're getting ahead. I'm not. When I totally should have been competing against myself, focused on self-improvement, focused on um, investing is like a lot of pattern recognition. So focusing on the pattern recognition, improving at that over the years and not drowning in insecurity. So another piece of advice to 20 something time today is just focus on yourself, just competing against yourself. Who cares if other people are cheating to get ahead? So, mm. Tom, that's fantastic. I know you were in London last week or the week before, and you did four corporate talks. If anyone w- watching this wants to get hold of you, how do they do that? Yeah, so I've now trademarked TipperX, so <laughs> T-I-P-P-E-R-X.com, um, Tom at TipperX.com. And so that's that's the easiest way to reach me. Okay. Well, Tom Hardin, thanks so much for joining Monday Night Live, and we hope to catch up with you uh, in the uh, not-too-distant future. So can I ask uh, members of Monday Night Live to give Tom the usual round of of thanks in the normal way? Thank you. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Tom, thanks so much.